you guys awake? Hey? Let's try that again. Hello. Hi. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. Let me just start all my stuff. Um, give me a second here. Podcast, podcast recording. Okay, great. Cool. Um, hello. So apparently that who's coming for lunch fire place, Mitch just told me that fire was so good that they missed church that night, <laughs> So which is... <laughs> Which is amazing. It must have been an amazing fire. We had a fire as well, but we made it to church. <laughs> um, but it was cool. It was nice to have people um, in homes. Um, it's such a highlight. It's so, it's so rad. Um, so for those who are visiting, hello. Welcome. Uh, I'm Steph. Uh, this is my wife, Albury. She's leading worship earlier. Um, yeah, and it's really good to have you. If you are visiting us, uh, just make yourself at home. And um, hope you enjoy your evening with us. We are, what's, I had a picture of our puppy, right? But I can't show it um, because we didn't get it working. But we're proud parents of a five-month-old poodle, which is amazing. Thanks uh, to um, Philip, who's sitting over there, <laughs> and his dog. But uh, that's amazing. And she's probably causing chaos at home right now, <laughs> tearing a couple of things apart. But okay, let's start. We are in Ezra 8, right? So we're going through Ezra at the moment. And um, the last couple of weeks and months, we've been working our way through this book. Uh, if you haven't been tracking along, uh, welcome. Um, so basically, uh, if I you know, give you a little bit of a summary quickly. So what happened? 580 BC, Babylonians come in, they destroy Jerusalem and the temple, flatten it pretty much, and take a whole bunch of people into exile into Babylon. Uh, and the story of Ezra and Nehemiah basically start then, like 50 years after they in exile, right? And it very much is really, you know, we've got it as two books in the Old Testament, but it's very much one kind of story, essentially. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, it's broken into kind of three main sections. There's three main characters in these two books. And the first one um, is Zerubbabel, okay? Uh, for our Afrikaans person, that is amazing if you can say that, Zerubbabel. Um, but he... Uh, is, you know, he finds favor. It's, it's very interesting because the story like rep almost repeats itself. So Zerubbabel finds favor with Cyrus, who's the king at that time in Babylon. And he's like, no, go and rebuild the temple. And so that's how, you know, that's what we've seen over the last um, couple of chapters is how they go and they rebuild the temple. Uh, 50,000 exiles, massive group, amazing. And we've read all kinds of twists and turns in this whole story. Um, and then... The next big character is Ezra. We met Ezra last week, right? And essentially what he wants to go and do, like the end of Zerubbabel and, and the couple of chapters that we went through is almost a little bit of an anticlimax. The temple's built, but it's nothing like, you know, what they're expecting it to be, like God's presence to come down, people to worship God. And so Ezra, um, he, he wants, you know, the people to follow the law according to what the law says, you know, for God to be worshiped and he has this stirring in his heart. And he, you know, speaks to the king of that time. Now it's like 60 years later after Zerubbabel. And uh, he finds favor with the king, Artaxerxes. And he sends him and he says, actually, you know what? There's all this gold and treasure and silver that was taken from the temple. You can have it all back. Take it all back to um, placing the temple for its proper use. So it's amazing favor, right? Uh, and then the third character is going to be Nehemiah, who we're still going to get to. 
um, but he goes and rebuilds the temple. Also finds favor with, with the king of the time. But it's always like this anticlimax at the end. It's not just not quite there, right? Um, and amazing, like the, the, the summary of, of this book really is like, you know, people aren't perfect. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we can put in efforts and it's amazing, but we need changed hearts, right? We need our hearts to be changed. And there's a, a picture of a new Jerusalem and a Messiah, a Messianic king that will come and give us those changed hearts. All right. Okay, so, but rewind a little bit. We're looking at Ezra 8. So the story of how Ezra takes a smaller group of people from Babylon um, to Jerusalem, and it goes into the detail of what happens. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through the whole chapter from verse 15, and um, we're going to see, I mean, it, it seems like, hey, this is just a bunch of random events happening on their journey, and, um, but, but what I want us to see is like, hey, there's a couple of challenges that Ezra faces, and we're going to pull out some principles that we can take out of this chapter. I'm going to be doing a lot of reading, so. All right, we're going to start from verse 15. The first, the first 15 verse, first 14 verses, very much is like who this group is made up of. There's 5,000 people, like 12 families, and it just goes through all their names, and I'm going to spare you that. You can go read that at home. But just for the sake, in the sake of, t uh, in the interest of time, I'm just going to start from verse 15. Okay, so Ezra says this, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. Perfect. Okay, there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of the Levite. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemamiah, uh, El Nathan, Jerob, El Nathan, Nathan, another Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyrib and El Nathan, who were men of insight. Eighth, like anything ending with Ethan was quite popular in that time. And sent them to Ido, the leading man of the place um, called Casaphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God and by the good hand of our God. This is a repeated phrase in this chapter. Um, by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. And the sons of Mahli, the sons of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, sons of Merari, and his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides the 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Okay, three challenges. The first one is this. There are no Levites, right? Ezra spreads the words. He's like, guys, we are heading back to Jerusalem. Um, tell everyone about it. This is where we're going to meet, so-and-so place, um, this date and time, and 5,000 people show up, right? A bit smaller than the 50,000 from the first group of exiles, but 5,000 show up, and Ezra begins to make a list. He's like, okay, what's your name? Who's, you know, <clears throat> where are you from? What's your family? And he starts putting together this list, and he discovers a problem, right? There are no Levites. There are no Levites, and why is this important? Um, Levites were assistants to the priest, right? So Ezra's got this stirring in his heart. They want to worship God the way that God has called us to worship him, and Levites were set apart for that purpose. They were responsible for um, the, the slaughtering of the animals and the sacrifices, the guarding of the temple gates, the, all the temple artifacts had to be cared for by the Levites, right? And so now, remember, Artaxerxes, the king, has given Ezra all these, this gold and silver, the artifacts and 
um, and they need to essentially be carried by Levites. So Ezra, if he's going to do this thing according to the way that God wants it done, he needs Levites, okay? So it's a problem. It's a big problem that, um, that there aren't any Levites. And another thing about Levites, as I mentioned, is they were set apart. Back in Jerusalem, if you were a Levite, you were going to be a temple servant, right? That was your calling and your destiny. Um, and you couldn't own any land. You couldn't start a business or anything. You, you worked in the temple, essentially, okay? And so you can imagine over 50, 60 years, um, Levites had gotten, you know, they were loving life in Babylon a little bit, you know? Um, they could own land. They could have businesses. And so it was a tough call. It was like, hey, guys, come, you know, uh, God's calling us to go and do this thing. And then, you know, it probably just kind of disappeared a little bit into the bushes. Um, so, so you can kind of understand why, why no one showed up. It was a tough call. So what does Ezra do, right? He gets some of the leading men. It says the learned men, these guys would have known scripture. And he's like, you go. You go and chat to this guy called Ido. Um, he's, he's almost running like... Um, you know, he's, he's one of the guys who knows where to chat to Levites. And so they go and they speak and they find these guys. And, um, and these learned men would have quoted some of the contemporary prophets. They would have spoken how Isaiah at that time had said, hey, there is a new Jerusalem, right? There is a, a messianic king who will rule and reign. There's a new temple that God is gonna build. And so they would have quoted that to these men. They would have said, and spoken about um, Jeremiah and how he said, uh, how God promised that he would have Levites in his temple once it would be rebuilt. And they would say, hey, you're the guy that this prophet is speaking about. You're the man that we are counting on, right? He would have reminded them of that bigger story. I think of Haggai 1 that um, Paul read a couple of weeks ago that was also one of the prophets that spoke in this time. He, he said this, now, therefore, this says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He's saying, hey guys, yeah, life in Babylon might seem good, right? We might just be like fitting in and looking like every other person in this city, but it doesn't truly satisfy, right? There's a bigger story there's a bigger story that's unfolding and, and you called to be part of that. God is calling you to play your part, right? And they would have been stirred up. And 38 respond. Biblical scholars believe that there was probably a lot more, all right? But 38 respond and Ezra says, hey, by the gracious hand of our God, right? They brought us and he lists the name of these men. Ezra doesn't, he isn't like, maybe there's a little bit of disappointment, but he's saying, hey, God has graciously changed the hearts of 38 Levites, and they responded. They've said, hey, I'm all in. I'm gonna opt into this story and to this mission. I'm gonna give this up, and I'm gonna say yes to that, right? And there's a, there's a bigger story for us to say, hey, I am all in as well. So that's the first challenge. Ezra finally Levites. Let's continue to read. He's gonna read from verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there, at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good, 
on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored God for this, and he listened to our entreaty, right? So here's the second challenge. Ezra speaks to this king, um, this pagan king, Artaxerxes, who, and there's incredible favor, right? And Ezra's like, he's on a high. He's like, God, you, uh, you know, my God is amazing. His hand is for good on all who seek him. And he's almost, you know, testifying of God's goodness, this Yahweh, that he's the living God. He is the real God. And there's a bigger story, right? And he says that he's ashamed to then say, okay, well, listen, this is a five-month journey, right? We're carrying a lot of silver and gold and treasure. Uh, there's no highway police. And would you mind just giving us like a couple of soldiers to protect us, okay? It just doesn't seem right to him. So he says no, right? He turns down just the help of the king. So here's his, his second challenge, right? He needs um, a safe journey. He needs God to come through. Essentially, Ezra steps out in faith in a massive way. All right, so that's the second challenge. Here's the third one. Let's continue to read from verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of the kingsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. And I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold. Now, this is a lot, guys. This is like millions and millions in today's currency, right? Um, 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls gold of gold worth 1,000 derricks, uh, two vessel, vessels of fine, bright bronze, right? This is amazing. I mean, can you imagine this thing? Bright bronze is precious as gold. And I said to them, uh, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, the house of our God. Okay, third challenge is this. Ezra really wants every last little piece of gold and silver and treasure to make it back to Jerusalem, okay? So he's already like, this is, you know, there's already the threat of um, bandits and stuff, but there's also the threat of maybe some dodgy Levites, right? Who, for five months, and you're carrying like four bowls of gold, and you're saying, listen, buddy, I'm just gonna take one of these for myself. I'm gonna put it in the mantle cabinet, right? In the showcase. So he doesn't want any kind of like dodgy tenders or any. Um, you know, anything to be taken off the top a little bit. So these guys, you know, some travel tax. Um, so what does he do? He applies wisdom and strategy, really. He sits and thinks, and he says, cool, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna record. I'm gonna say, great, Greg, I'm giving you this much gold. Albury, I'm gonna give you this much silver. I'm gonna put down your name on the register. And when we get to Jerusalem, I'm, that's exactly what I want from you, all right? Um, so you're accountable for that, okay? All right, so that's the, Third challenge. Now, let's read the last couple of verses. Are they successful? This is from verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, from ambushes, ambushes by the way. Amazing. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of, God, of our God, the silver and the golden vessels were weighed into the hands of Miramoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jezebeth, the son of Joshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binu. The whole was counted and weighed, 
and the weight of everything was recorded. Right, everything made it back. Amazing. And at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs. Glad the SPCA wasn't there. And as a sin offering, 12 male goats, right? This was a burnt offering to the Lord. So that's massive, right? Big offering. These guys are celebrating in a big way. And they also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and the governors uh, of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people in the house of God. Okay, right, so lots, three challenges. Uh, what can we, you know, what can we um, learn from, from this chapter in Israel? And, uh, Ezra? And I wanna pull out just four principles um, for us here tonight. The first one is this, right? Come to God first in prayer. In all things, in all your challenges, come to God first in prayer. Before Ezra embarks on the journey, and in the face of these challenges, what does he do? He gets everyone together to pray and to fast. And it wasn't quick. It was a three-day prayer meeting, right? So it wasn't just a, God, be with us on our journey. Give us some travel mercies. Um, let's go. No, it was three days of praying and seeking God. There's nothing wrong with quick little prayers. But um, Ezra knew two things. He knew that, hey, they had a five-month journey journey in front of them who turned down the help of the king for an armed guard and they desperately needed God to come through all right they desperately needed him to come through for them and protect them but not only that Ezra Ezra also knew something about their hearts and we picked that up and I find that so amazing verse 21 where it says they they pray and they fast so that they can do something to their hearts right it says that we might humble ourselves before our God we might humble, we wanna pray because we wanna seek God, but we also wanna humble ourselves before God. We wanna come before him and look to him in the proper way. And he knew, he knew something about the human heart, right? That pride is the opposite of humility, that we often go and say, all right, I've got a challenge. You know what? The first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take charge and I'm gonna, um, I'm ultimately in control. And pride says, hey, I don't really need God. I can do this by myself. Ezra would have known the scriptures. He would have read uh, the Psalms, and one of the Psalms you probably would have known is this, Psalm 147, verse 10, where David writes and says, hey, God's delight, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. What the Psalm is saying, hey, God doesn't take pleasure, the things of that day who, that showed strength, so how quickly soldiers could run into battle, like strong soldiers or um, the number of horses and carriages that we had, those were things that um, showed the strength of the king essentially, right? Um, he says, hey, God, you know, he doesn't have regard for that. That's not the thing that he takes pleasure in. He takes pleasure in our hearts, right? Those who come to him and look to him and awe, those who hope in his steadfast love. And Ezra would have known Isaiah 66, which was also written around the time that the temple was rebuilt, specifically Isaiah was, um, you know, the prophet who said, this says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? Like referring to that second temple that was built. And what is the, um, and what is the place of my rest? All these things, like this temple that you're building, I made the very material that you're building this temple with, right? That's, they exist because I have graciously given it to you, right? But this, dec this declares the Lord. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite 
in spirit and he trembles at my word, right? I love that. This is the one. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. My favor, my blessing, he who is humble and contrite and he trembles at my word. We've got this picture that, hey, God is not interested in the external kind of, um, you know, things that we bring, but he's interested in our hearts. And Israel knows this. And prayer does something to our hearts, friends. It rightly aligns us to who God is, right? It brings perspective. It tells us who God is, who we are in relation to him. And so I want to encourage you, no, no matter the situation, no matter the challenge, like big or small, like come to God first and foremost in prayer, okay? In your life, there are going to be challenges. If, if you haven't had any challenges, that's strange. It's only a matter of time that we will have challenges. And, and I think we all have had challenges. You think about like health challenges and, and work and family. I think for us, I mean, we almost at getting that age where our parents are getting like older and there's, you know, sickness and, and death. And, and those are very real realities that we need to face. That, you know, that, that's just the stage of our, of our life. And we realize just how fragile life is, right? And health challenges. Um, I think of, you know, unfulfilled desires and hopes. I mean, most of us here are young. There are things that we desire and we want for our lives, right? Those are challenges. Those are very real challenges that I want to recognize and I want to encourage you, come to God first in prayer, first and foremost, okay? Paul Tripp says this, prayer is abandoning my reliance on myself. Prayer abandons independence. Prayer forsakes any thought that you can make it on your own. Prayer affirms dependency. Prayer acknowledges weakness. Prayer tells you that you are not at the center. Friends, I want to ask you, hey, what, in the face of challenges, what is your default? Okay. Do you run into solution mode? I so often do, right? The first thing I do is like, okay, how am I going to solve this thing, right? Um, but I want to encourage you, run to God in, in prayer, right? It does something to, to our hearts. Yes, we, we you know, we, 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 we often go with a list, but prayer does something to our hearts and we see him for who he is and it aligns just in terms of um, the good news that is ours in Jesus Christ. Run to him. Okay, here's the second one. Um, run, no, look to God to provide through the ordinary, right? So um, first you go to God in prayer, look to him to provide in the ordinary, right? Notice how Ezra faces three challenges, right? Two times he solves it very practically by wisdom and he strategizes, says we've got no Levites, I'm gonna get some men to go and convince and tell these guys about the biggest story um, and, you know, he's concerned about everything, making it back. And he says, I'm going to do make a register. And there's very real practical ways in which he, you know, tr solves these challenges. And one time, it's very much stepping out in faith, right? He's saying, no, I don't need an armed God. Our God is going to come through for us. And notice how all three times there's that repeated phrase, the good hand of our God is on us, right? God uses Ezra's strategy and planning. And most often in our lives, God works through us applying wisdom and taking action, right? I think of just our story, Albury being sick last year and just going through all of that. I think of the incredible doctors and specialists um, and people that we could see and how God worked through very practical ways and means, right? In the midst of that whole journey, we had to make some really tough decisions, and it was such a blessing to, in that time, to draw from the wisdom of people in our community, 
right? We were able to, um, to sit with people and say, this is what's happening. These are the type of decisions that we need to make here. Like, won't you pray with us? Won't you tell us what you think? It was an amazing um, blessing to draw from the wisdom of community. And I wanna encourage us as the evening PM meeting, hey, if you consider this church your home, don't miss out on the opportunity to journey and draw from the wisdom of people in this church, right? Greg is amazing and wise, right? He does coaching, that's part of his business. I love like being able to, um, you know, journey with him uh, in elders meeting, meetings on a weekly basis, just hear his wisdom and I feel so comfortable to and know that, hey, I can go to him and I can tell him what's going on in work and, um, and I wanna encourage you as well, draw from the wisdom in this community. We're making decisions, big decisions, like who to date, who to marry, um, you know, moving or whatever it is, like the type of work that you um, take on, whatever it is, guys, I encourage you, draw from the wisdom, right? All right, so God works, look to God to provide through the ordinary, we see that for Ezra, but also look to God to provide in the extraordinary. So Ezra turns down the help of the king, right, um, it, for armed escort, and um, it's, uh, it's probably, you know, if you look to that decision, you're like, okay, dude, are you sure <laughs> about this, right? Doesn't quite seem rational, but um, we've got to say, okay, on what basis did Ezra make this decision? And, and it, was, it was for God's glory, right? Ezra was saying, hey, I, I want to testify of my God to this king. I want him to know that my God is real and, and, um, and, he, and, he, um, and I want you to see that, essentially, right? That's what he was saying to this king. And, you know, one of the examples in history where we see this type of decision, this type of faith, um, is by a guy by the name of George Mueller, right? And um, he was a German that came to faith. He lived a reckless, crazy reckless life, and he, his life turned around in a radical way, and he decided, he said, hey, I feel like God is prompting me to go and start an orphanage in the UK, and eventually what happened was that this orphanage ended up looking after ten, like thousands, 10,000 children in its existence. It was amazing. But he was known for making a principled decision that he would never ask for any money, right, to do this thing, that he wanted it all to happen by him praying, by God providing in radical ways, right? And, um, and he's an amazing guy. One of my favorite quotes is, is by George Muller. It's, it, it's this, that, he said, the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. He had an amazing prayer life, apparently, right? So you can imagine this guy probably had a massive list of things that he wanted to ask for. Lord, I need a fridge. We need an oven. We need like food for these kids. I've got like a thousand kids coming in. We need to feed these guys. So he probably had like, Lord, you know, let me start and let me tell you about everything I need. But he said, hey, first and foremost, like I want my heart to be happy before God, in God, right? I want to um, have my soul delight in God, right? When, when he was asked, hey, why did you make that decision? And, you know, to not ask for money, he basically said three reasons. He said, um, firstly and foremost, that God would be glorified, and I'll paraphrase, paraphrase, he basically said like, hey, I want other people to see that God is real and that you can trust him, Right? saying, hey, that's primarily why I wanted to do this. I want people to know and see that God is real. I'm, I believe that there's a calling to do this and I wanna step out in faith. And his second reason was, 
you know, I want to look after these kids and their spiritual good. And then thirdly, I want to look after their physical good. All right. But first and foremost was like God's glory. And before you think, hey, I, I'm encouraging you tonight to go out this week and start an orphanage. I'm not. Um, but if you want to, then that's great as well. Um, but George Muller himself went on to say this. He said, every Christian is not called by the Lord to establish schools and orphan houses. So sigh a sigh of relief. It's okay, right? Um, so not every Christian is called to start an orphanage and to trust in the Lord mean for, wait, let me read that again. Every Christian is not called by the Lord to establish schools and orphan houses and to trust in the Lord for means for them. Yet there is no reason why you may not experience far more abundantly than we do now his willingness to answer prayers for his children. He's like, hey, your calling might not be to go and start an orphanage, but there's no reason why you can't experience the same type of favor and blessing as you hold fast to God and his promises and his character. It's amazing, right? And I think we, we read accounts like this in Ezra in a story. It, it seems quite hard, right? It's right there. Um, but it, it's there to stir up something in our hearts, right? Um, because I think that this type of faith is, is pleasing to God. That's what Hebrews 11 says, that uh, without faith, it will be, here we go, without faith, it is impossible to please him. It pleases God, right? It's a type of faith that pleases God. There's a way in which God delights his people deliberately depending on him in this way. And I think we need to demonstrate this type of faith in our own lives to some degree, right? For our hearts to be reminded of who God is, right? Um, faith gives birth to more faith. I love stories of testimony because you hear about how God is moving in people's lives and it stirs up something in our own hearts. The more you experience the reality of God, of who he is, his power that he is alive, the more it stirs up uh, faith in your own heart for the next challenge, and the more your faith inspires other people. Have you noticed that? Right, you hear a story about someone else, and you're like, it does something in your own heart. And George Muller inspired guys like Hudson Taylor, who went and started the China Inland Mission, who looked after thousands of missionaries in China. A lot of the amazing things happening in China today is because of Hudson Taylor and, and what, what he started there. And that was very much inspired by George Muller. So faith inspires um, other people. So, hey, quickly, what would it look like for us, right? I think if, that, if we were to bring it into our lives and say, okay, what does faith, like hope, trusting in God and his steadfastness look like for us? And I can think of, you know, there are many ways, but I want to point out two for us here tonight, right? I think it takes faith to live in obedience to God, to his commands, right? It takes faith to say, God, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm, I believe that you have a better plan for my life, right? And if we think about that in relation to, our, to daily struggles with temptations, it's always faith that will get you through that because you say, hey, I believe that, um, that God is good and whatever he says here is gonna be better in the long run, even though it feels like I might be missing out in the short run, in the, in the right now, right? It takes faith to come to God and look to him and trust him. It also takes faith to apply godly wisdom in the choices that we make, right? If we prioritize his glory in our lives, what would that look like? His ways, his calling. Um, it would mean that there's an implication for how you do your work, 
who you choose to marry, what you do with your time, with your money, with your resources. It takes faith to say, actually, the world says do one thing, right? But actually, God says do something totally different, which might not even make sense to the world. Like sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend who you're not married to. The world is like, are you mad? Um, It takes faith to say, hey, actually, no, God is better, and I trust him, and I'm going to live according to his ways because I believe that he is good. If you're, you know, you apply the same to your time and uh, money and, and, you know, all the things that we steward in our lives. And I want to, hey, say to you tonight, like, is there an area in your life that God is potentially, sorry, I need to be done, almost done. All right. Is there an area in your life that God is potentially calling you to um, step out in faith and trust him right? Is there an area of your life that God is calling you to lean into him in this type of faith? And, and you know, I think we all, we're in a city, we practical people, we often go to solution mode, we like to be in control and to be in charge, but is there somewhere that God is potentially nudging and saying, hey, look, I want you to step out in faith in this area. I want calling you to trust me. I want you to experience the reality of God for his glory and for you good, for your good. And that's at a personal level, but what, what about for us as a church, right? Is there an area that God is potentially calling us as a church to um, step out and have faith for something, um, to contend in prayer? Is that, you know, can I ask you, is there something that you're praying for for us as a church that you've got faith for, for um, people to come through that door and to, uh, to meet God, right, to come to faith, for us to hear stories of, uh, of grace um, changing people's lives, right, of potentially, you know, church plants, or, um, you know, whatever it may be. But there's so many things that we can say, hey, you know, we're trusting God for big things um, for our church. I think you think of like the kids' ministry in the morning and the teenage ministry and life groups and all those things. Okay, here's the final thing. In his provision, give thanks, right? Give thanks in his provision. Notice how Ezra repeats this phrase again and again, by the good hand of our God, right? In the midst of challenges and seeking um, God, in the mundane, the ordinary, and the extraordinary, Ezra praises and gives recognition to God, right? He sees the hand of God in all things. He praises and gives recognition to God. He trusts and recognizes God at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the challenges that he faces. He says, by the good hand of our God. And friends, hey, I want to tell you tonight that you too can say, by the good hand of our God. You can say, the good hand of God is on me, Right? Why can we say that? We can say that because uh, Jesus has dealt with our biggest challenge, right, which is sin and rebellion. Essentially what we did was uh, we turned away from God. We, exactly what I was speaking about, pride and putting ourselves in that place of wanting to be in absolute control of everything. That's the essence of our problem, our sinfulness, is that God created us to worship him, to look to him, to be amazed by him, to as steward his creation together with him, right? To enjoy him as our ultimate satisfaction. And we decided, no, actually we know better and we turned our back on him, right? And that's uh, our biggest problem. But Christ stepped down into the story of humanity. He stepped into your story. He has solved your biggest problem. If you're a Christ follower, Jesus has dealt with your biggest challenge, which is your sin and rebellion, right? And here's the amazing thing. I know that, you know, there's still challenges that we go through. And I'm so aware that there are, serious challenges, and I want to encourage you that, hey, Christ is no stranger to challenges. He came to serve, 
and give his life for us as a ransom for many. And we can hold fast to the fact that, hey, Jesus is with me. Right? We may not always understand why I'm going through the challenges that I'm going through, sometimes difficult. We don't know. We can't you know, give an exact answer, but we can say, hey, what does the cross say? If I take my circumstance to the cross, I know that it's not because Jesus doesn't care for me, right? That's been proven. Jesus loves you, right? In the biggest possible sense, he gave his life for you. So you can know and bank in the midst of your challenges that God loves you. He loves you and he's with you. And it's a repeated just phrase that we read again and again throughout scripture is, is God saying, hey, I love you, right? I'm with you, so don't be afraid. You, don't not need, you do not need to be afraid. And that's why, hey, friend, if you're a Christ follower, we can have, in the midst of challenges, we can have a radically different view of challenges in our hearts, right? We know that sin, like, will always harden your heart, but God has the ability to use, and often does use suffering to soften our hearts, right? You can have a deep sense of joy and hope in the midst of suffering that you are loved and you can give thanks for that. So friends, like verse 22 says, where Israel says to the king, hey, the, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. I wanna, I wanna encourage you tonight. Hey, will you, will you seek him? Will you bring your life to him? Right? Will you step out in faith? Will you say, hey, actually, you know, I want to I wanna, I wanna bank my life on this. I want to take God at his word. I want to look to him. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to invite the band up. And I want to ask you to stand. And I just want to take a moment to respond, right? And um, read this passage of scripture. You can close your eyes. It's not going to be up on the screen. And then um, we're talking about like, hey, the faithfulness of God. The fact that, um, that today alone, he's done a thousand different things in your lives, right? In terms of looking after you and in big ways and small ways. And, and he loves you. That's what the Bible says. He is with you, right? In the midst of your challenge, in the midst of the struggles, he says, hey, I love you. And so I want to read this and maybe just close your eyes and just receive this. But is it from Isaiah 43? This says the Lord, he who created, right? You're created. You have a creator. He who formed you, right? You've been formed. He made you in a, in a very specific way. He made you the way that you are. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Right? He's laying claim over you. If you're in Christ, Romans says, there's nothing that can remove you from the hand of God. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. To the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, right? Creator of the heavens and the earth, 
rejoicing over you and declaring his love for you. And he's worthy. You can trust him. You can build your life on him. And so 